Tonight I'd like to reflect on re-enchanting relationship. And by relationship I mean with parts of ourself, with ourself, with our lovely, difficult and in-between territory. I mean relationship with others, all others, human others, animal others, um, animate others, inanimate others, seen others, unseen others, with um, the imaginal figures that arise in our practice, with the world, with the cosmos, and relationship with the all forms of otherness, including the, the great mystery that brings us here. And to explore this territory, we also need to look at the territory of desire because we need to want to enter into relationship um, if we are to do this work of re-enchanting and the healing that goes with it. We need to want to enter into relationship. And the territory of desire is tricky. We know that we can be ambivalent about relationship, many of us. Either we want, sometimes we want it so much that we, uh, that, the desi that our desire kind of drives us and rides us and we get stuck, we lose ourselves in the relationship or the idea of the relationship. We get stuck or lost in wanting particular things from it and not getting them and being disappointed or wanting more and, and tightening around that wanting. Or we can be ambivalent, we can want to hide and withdraw from relationship because it's complex um, and uh, tricky. To re-enchant relationship is to enter the garden of multiple meaningfulnesses that uh, that we don't or that we do the work where we're not compelled to shrink around particular ideas of relationship, particular um, things that we want from it and must have. Because for this practice to be truly of service, that this practice of re-enchantment and imaginal work, to truly be of service, it, it must touch all forms of relationship, all forms of meeting otherness in all the ways that we do all the time. That it doesn't become a practice where we only enter the inner realms of the depth and, and richness of the imaginal as it arises on the in, so-called inside or our relationship with divinity that is only private, but to dare to enter a re-enchanted cosmos is to be willing to look into all relationship. So the territory of desire, if we're enter picking up this territory, we need wisdom. Okay? And some of us were probably attracted to Dharma teachings uh, because 
of the, the, the clarity and brilliance in the Four Noble Truths of actually seeing the craving as a cause of suffering, some of us can go, oh, phew, I can put the desire away. I, I don't have to go there. That's not going to get me what I need and what I truly want. And yes, there's a wisdom in that. Absolutely, we want to do that work of seeing that there isn't one particular thing, or object, person, role, function, job, inner experience, outer experience that's going to do it for us. Yes, we need to absolutely know the emptiness in order to uh, enter the world with wisdom. And if any of us, through our own development, our own history, or our own way of working the path, if any of us have put away our desire, or degrees of putting away our desire, this is also a problem. This is also a problem. That the heart, if we put away the desire of the heart, the heart's desire to know more, to be known, to see more, to go deeper, to open further, to, to, to know more and more this mystery that we are here with, in. If we put away our desire, the heart can get become deadened, can lose its juice, its luster, its, um, its gift. So the skillful handling of desire. Henry Corbin says, philosophy must arise in the heart in order to mediate the cosmos, which appears inner and outer. He says, the intelligence of the heart connotes a simultaneous knowing and loving by means of uh, sorry, by means of imagining, to desire and to see through desire. This is the courage of the heart. To desire and to see through desire. This is the courage of the heart. How can we practice desiring and seeing through desire at the same time? Strikes me as a beautiful question, a sacred question question that may take us to the altar, the altar of the heart where we can hold steady the flame of the Eros whose passion is to come closer, to draw closer to the beloved otherness to hold steady with that eros, with our absolute love of the dispassion, the cooling, the dissolving of all two-nesses, all sense of two-ness, all sense of self and other, into all these universal realms that become available to us, forms of, of the sacred knowing of forms of oneness, 
all the onenesses we can know, the oneness of love, the oneness of awareness, the one, the onenesses of um, silence. How do we kneel at that altar between desire and desirelessness without reifying either? I want to offer another image for this altar as a fulcrum, a fulcrum which is a balancing place. Um, And in this image, I want us to imagine a fulcrum between the sky and the earth coming right through us, a vertical uh, axis right through the middle of us, through the head, through the place behind the heart, just in front of the spine, right through, down through the perineum to the earth and through the earth. And breathing there with that vertical axis. And in the middle place, somewhere around the heart territory, to imagine the axis coming through from the heart in front of us. And through the heart through our body and the infinite territory that we enfold as bodies, right through behind us. So imagine this axis coming through in front of us to the other people in the room, to the space, to the walls, to through to the garden, the guy house garden. And through behind us, through the body and behind us. And in the middle there, this fulcrum, this fulcrum that is not a fixed place that we arrive at. A fulcrum is intelligent, it's balancing, it's, it's flexible, it's alive, it's moving, it's responsive to forces. Inner and outer, above and below. And that perhaps we can breathe and imagine here a pilot light like in a gas burner, a little pilot like a light, a flame, a spark. A spark that animates us while we are alive. And as you keep sensing that as I speak, I want to offer an image of uh, the logo the logo of a conference I was at a few weeks ago. And the conference was called The Heart of Silence. And the image that went with this conference that was projected on the wall behind the speakers was of a a backdrop of blackness, pure, rich, unwritten upon blackness, like the night sky, like the depth and unfathomability of the night sky where... Um, sometimes it can have for us, if we don't just stop with the concept in our mind of black, we can sometimes get the sense or the whisper or the uh, draw to this kind of unfathomable mystery, unfathomable depth, unwritten upon, all potentialities possible there. And on this black backdrop, right in the centre, there was this, small but significant flame 
a single flame that was just tilted slightly to, to the left or the right, like as if a small wind was blowing through that flame. The color of the flame, the, the, the red, the orange, the white, the blue, the violet, this alive flame right in the middle of this black. And just take that image, if you will, or whatever it might be your equivalent into your contemplation right now as we explore desire and desirelessness of that flame at the center of you in that heart, the, that illuminating flame, that spark that is here, it seems, while we are alive. Sometimes it's called consciousness and sometimes there's ideas that it begins in the brain as a, one modern idea. But let's not limit the story of that spark in us to even the most interesting modern notions. Let's really hold that open, that spark. As you breathe right through your center, this alive fulcrum, this altar, I'm calling it right now. Because to sit here is to be vulnerable. Vulnerable here, not just and not only, but including vulnerable to all the impacts, all that we feel, all of the inner territory that's yet to be known and wants to come forward. <coughs> Vulnerable also means to be able to be impacted, to be able to, um, to be impacted by what is not yet known. And there is so much we don't know. And as one of my friends and teacher colleagues says, everything wants to be known. Everything wants to be loved. Everything wants to be seen. And in our work of both healing and re-enchanting our perception, re-enchanting relationship to enter into the garden of multiple meaningfulnesses, <coughs> excuse me, is to not stop. To not stop with one perception, with one conclusion, with one narrative, with one idea about self or other. I'm going to read this poem someone gave me today from the retreat, which she was very happy for me to share with you. See if you can hear her desire and her, the basis of wisdom that, that holds that, and this image of the fulcrum. <clears throat> I want you to read the sacred texts inscribed in my limbs, to touch the braille of their meaning in the lumps of my bones, and I want your breath 
to be the mantra that calls me, for you to take my embrace and know your flesh and know my flesh is of the same clay. And when you read my movements, I want you to see beneath to the scrolls that wrote them. And when I bow to prayer, may your feet be the shrine to which I fall. How to love a mysterious otherness, beloved otherness, otherness. And to realize our dependence on otherness. To know us, to help ourselves and each other know more and more, open more and more to the mystery. One person in the group today had an inquiry. She said, where will this all end if we keep going in this direction of re-enchantment? She said, I'm, I'm loving it. It's rich and there's meaningfulness, but there's also fears and doubts. Something about it reminds me of ways of seeing that I knew when I was younger, which I later found out were a load of rubbish. And she was talking about certain religious sensibilities that can, that, that, that can come up um, as we're practicing in this way. She said, from my perspective now, that that enchantment that I was in with those kind of religious sensibilities now seems like it was synonymous with being completely convinced about my perspective, my view, my way of knowing. And... This may be one of the fears or doubts that comes up, that the, there may be at times a kind of religious sensibility, that in the human being that seeks for meaningfulness in the cosmos. And that we see so many examples of where, that, where people can sometimes have those very strong senses of meaning and meaningfulness, but that they can also be, their awareness can shrink around their ways of seeing, the conviction about what they see and how they see it, and their identification with the group of them who are seeing in that way, namely becoming a fundamentalist, or, or from so literalizing and being convinced of the absolute reality of our way of seeing, of what we see, and the, the group that we belong to that sees in that way, that we have lost or have no access to any wisdom that comes from seeing emptiness. So we are opening, or for some of us reopening, and certainly validating certain ways of knowing that we may have left behind when we were younger. Um, one is a kind of religious sensibility um, and the other, and related to this, is a kind of mythic, poetic way of looking that we can, uh, we may have known when we were much younger, often younger than seven, and sometimes earlier than we can actually remember, um, where it's like we're in a, one big story. By being alive, is like being in one big sort of mythic 
story where the trees have personality and character and can talk to us, where sometimes we might have the sense of adults or uh, bigger people being like gods or divinities, larger-than-life characters. Um, and we can easily be in that younger age, that sort of earlier than seven very often, where we easily believe as real the, the ideas that go with those stories, like with Father Christmas or the Easter Bunny. And this can be seen as a developmental stage for consciousness um, with its own richness and one that we do transcend, meaning we go further than that or we develop into the rational sense of uh, ways of looking, which then in a modern culture can sort of denigrate that previous way of knowing as if it was rubbish, as if it wasn't really real, but now I really know things really because I have a more rational perspective. In this practice, one of the things that will be opened, reopened and legitimized is these kinds of ways of knowing that we may have known when we were younger. So some of our work in the maturing kind of enchantment is to discriminate um, the limitations and the reifications that come in that younger way of seeing, where we believe as an absolute truth, as absolute reality, the stories, the identities, the perceptions and the feelings and the sense of self um, that, that are part of that way of looking or that get attached to that way of looking. So the yogi this morning, she said, and I don't want to go back there. Meaning I don't want to become young again or naive or easily fooled and then later find out that what I'm perceiving here is a load of rubbish. I don't want to go back there again and have to go through, recycle that whole kind of developmental um, learning. I would say that by her presenting this question and sincerely inquiring with the spiritual faculties very present, there was mindfulness, mindfulness of body, mindfulness of mind, wisdom, she could discriminate um, and she was endeavouring to discriminate which pathways led to more wisdom and compassion and which did not. There was faith in the process of the unfolding, the awakening. There was energy, and there was samadhi, there was a, a firm and flexible container for this inquiry. As we explored, and she said, yeah, I eventually saw through that way of looking, that sort of religious sensibility, that suggested to me that she saw that it was inaccurate. And she said, yes, and what is more, that those people, myself included, but those people in the world who are identified with these truth claims, that my tribe, my group, my subgroup know the truth, so they end up being the ones who start religious wars in the name of truth, or at least have a kind of superiority in their view of self, and therefore split the world into those who know and those who don't. As she explored, she discriminated 
between the way of seeing and the way of seeing opened her up to a little richness of perception of the cosmos, of people, of things, of what was arising. She discriminated the way of seeing from the tendency to want to then cling um, to the what she was seeing as being the truth and a basis from which to form a worldview. And the tendency of the personality, we could say, is binary. That, oh, if I found out that, that it wasn't real, then it means it's all a load of rubbish. Or it is really, really real, and I have to completely invest in that perception as the whole truth. And I said, see if you can just stand and straddle the middle way there. Yes, I found out it wasn't ultimately real. Yes. Can you stay there? And can you stay there without shutting down the lens and the way of seeing which has the richness and the meaningfulness and the love and the soul-making? Can you breathe right at that portal of the heart without having to shrink the awareness around it and reify what you're seeing as an absolute truth or deny it and make out that the way of seeing has no validity to it? And she did. And her exploration unfolded from there into something very rich, very meaningful, very whole, where levels of um, meaningfulness could be held simultaneously, the personal autobiographical level, the collective level, the more planetary level, the cosmological level where she could hold and embrace and touch the particulars of each of the issues, each of the beauties of the ways of seeing, without stopping there, without shrinking around them or pushing away. And that brought into her soul in that, in that inquiry a lot of layering of texture, of depth, of meaningfulness. And this takes the work of sifting through the fears and the doubts that can arise at this place. So I want to articulate some of them. Some of the fears and doubts are arising as we open the imaginal doorway and the possibility of re-enchanting the cosmos is ambivalence. As uh, like, I want this, I want this, there's something beautiful and rich and meaningful here, and I don't want this, and I don't want this. Some of that ambivalence can be uh, because of the pain, actually, that can have been there for us when we were younger uh, in, that, uh, in that mythic, poetic or religious sensibility, ways of seeing. Or similarly, when we've been in love, the kind of a, uh, immature enchantment that can happen when we're in love as well. Um, so sometimes the ambivalence could have a, a monologue such as, I'm not sure I want this. The last time I was this enchanted was when I was in love or when I was on a retreat in a certain meditative experience or when I was little and believed my mythic adventures as I roamed around the world. And I don't want it anymore because it proved to be A, not real, B, the perception collapsed and I became disappointed and hurt that I couldn't get it back. 
or C, it proved uh, to be not um, valid or something I want to go back to again because I was ridiculed and not taken seriously when I was in that stage of development. What I saw as real and meaningfulness was ridiculed by the old ones. Because it can be hard to touch the pain of that, sometimes what we will see is the layer of judgment that sort of sits on top. Um, the judgment that, oh, this is, this is a really stupid way of seeing, this is immature. Or no one sees things in this way anymore. We've, we've all grown out of that, you know, since the scientific revolution. Or, oh, don't go there, this one gets you into trouble. This is a recipe for disappointment. Um, people who believe in this way are stupid or naive. Or, this is a dangerous basis um, from which to look at the world, as if I'm going to be too vulnerable. The other issues it can bring up can have to do with hatred. Um, as we start to open up to a sense of divinity and sacredness of the world or reopen or validate that, it can sometimes bring uh, the sense that I don't trust this divinity. I trusted it once before in my early years and then it let me down. It wasn't there when I needed it. When I was at my lowest ebb, it didn't come and save me and so I hate it for that. I feel a kind of fury and a rage and I wish to annihilate that perception of divinity because it's not trustworthy. And the fourth area, so the ambivalence, the judgment, the hatred, they can simply be our just very uh, knee-jerk default faith in the rational scientific view as the only basis for knowing. Um, uh, and that will that, that can then judge the validity of other ways of seeing. And sometimes a fear with that, that, um, gosh, am I being asked to abandon the rational and the measurable? And just to say, hopefully it's been really clear in this retreat, absolutely not. Um, absolutely not. So just... If we look a little bit at child development, it seems that when we're enchanted as children, whether we can remember it or not, when there isn't wisdom, where there isn't a basis in understanding emptiness, then when we're enchanted, we very often um, reify that enchantment. And often we're reifying, making absolutely real the feeling that goes with it. Often the heart can be very open. There may be a lot of emotion in that. We can reify the idea of the other, so Father Christmas or the Easter Bunny or certain views about God. Um, so the feeling, the sense of other and the ideas. And, and we're enchanted too with the kind of myth that we believe we're in. So if we're out, playing on the street or in the garden with our little mythic adventure or whatever we're with, um, it can feel like a, um, uh, a painful truncation of that if then mum calls out and says, come in and, come in and have your dinner. It's like, oh, there can be a collapse of that enchantment or having to keep weaving that enchantment in our head while we're eating our, you know, leeks and potatoes um, 
that we want to sort of separate the world and only know in that kind of way and not be able to handle the um, mundane in a certain way. So we essentially have identified with, clung to, reified the ideas, the feelings, the perceptions, the others, the myth. Um, and it would be right as maturing adults that we don't want to go back there uh, because this is very precarious. Ideas, others, selves, feeling, perceptions are empty, they're impermanent. And if we cling to them, we suffer. So how do we know a mature enchantment and how do we know maturity without shutting down the mythic, poet, poetic, religious sensibility from the heart? Sometimes in the modern age, maturity is seen as arising once we reach and can make our home in a more rational way of knowing, where we're less emotionally pulled around by feelings and perceptions. And indeed, there is a kind of maturity that comes, can come for a child as we uh, develop more um, ability to stand apart from our experience, to sort of assess it, to look upon it. And uh, around the same time, developing a sense of self-reflection where we're not just fully in um, and taken by our experience. This is indeed a developmental achievement, um, but very often it comes uh, at the cost of losing contact with forgetting these other ways of knowing and we, we can denigrate them. So for maturity, for enchantment, we want to reopen, open, validate certain sensibilities that may have, we may have um, put them away somewhere <clears throat> around seven years old. Um, and when we open them up again in our practice, it may be like we're picking up where we left off. We might find some of these young, vulnerable sensibilities in them. We might start to see another as, you know, a divinity in a certain way. And there is something we want to validate about that and there is something we want to clarify about that as to where, because of the intensity of feeling that can come with it, where the awareness can shrink and tighten around those perceptions as if they are an ultimate truth. I'd like to read a piece from somebody's practice that summarizes some of what I've just been talking about. Today, the pine boards that make up the cabin in my garden appear as blazing faces of the sacred. Their appearance today is a theophany, a showing through of God. And to know this is meaningful to my soul. I know more unequivocally than ever that I belong here, thoroughly at home here on earth. From this vantage point, the idea that the wood in my cabin is just pine, i.e. from the builder's merchants, utilitarian and lacking soul, seems very limited intellectually, and to my heart it feels shocking. I do not object to using wood, but to imagine that its place in the world is to serve my need, and to be mostly ignored as the backdrop against which the drama of my life occurs, this idea feels painful. To abandon this perception of bold, blazing beauty is cause for a grief far greater than any other loss I have known so far.
Somehow, it seems, I have to flatten this way of seeing in order to fit and find belonging with my culture and my people. To meet them is to tacitly agree upon a utilitarian view as the main way to know the pine boards. I would be laughed at or possibly considered mad if I go to B&Q and herald the glory of God by the wood section. I do not take this view as the whole truth, but it hurts my heart to shrink and disappear this perception. It feels like a dismembering, a truncating. I don't do it deliberately, but the lenses of my soul are new to this kind of remembering. It feels like I am slowly recovering from a form of anesthesia and amnesia, of forgetting and of the loss of the capacity to feel so deeply the impact of things on my soul. This shrinking down of awareness to put away this sensibility reminds me of being young, six-ish, in that age when I started to shut down the mythic poetic sensibility in order to shape up and be grown up. It seemed I had to sever that way of knowing from the public view of my older siblings and reserve it for creative writing at school, reading the Beano on Saturday morning or in church on Sunday. I transitioned from being a soul where the presence of each thing made a bold imprint on and through me to being a someone able to manage those impressions. It had been the impression of each thing that was the way that I came to know it. The expression on each face was thoroughly known through the way it left an impression in the clay of my being. I might not have had words to describe the anger or excitement or sorrow on that person's face or words for the shape of their body, but the quality and feel of someone, of someone's soul was a bold entry each time and, and the same for all the things that emblazoned themselves in my heart. I was formed by all those shapes that left an impression. It was the main way I knew at that age. To enter the next phase was to, was to agree to rise above that way of knowing, to manage those bold impressions and to mediate my impressionability. To not be so easily impressed upon was a developmental achievement. I developed more ideas and tools for handling the glorious and scorching contact of the world. I saw the benefits of transcending that earlier stage. I was not so spun around anymore in the maelstrom of the world, loving and hating in equal measure, disappointment following hope on an hourly basis, and fear and desire ruling my heart. I had grown above that. My older siblings had appeared like gods to me, but that wasn't always so easy. I was so enchanted by them, but that enchantment could not yet be mature. I had no understanding that the impression of my big, big siblings as gods was an appearance and not a final truth about them, just as is the more normalised impression of them as only human. The gods of my childhood, however, could not possibly live up to the promise of the glory that I had seen in them, and I had to grow out of it. I was pleased to rise above that old sensibility the newly gained self-reflective consciousness had many gains, including being able to will myself not to cry when those gods got out of hand. I began to belong to the world of my older siblings, but something was lost. Something was severed in my way of seeing the world. 
as my soul silently mourned for the forgotten worlds below the radar, I began my search. So we're not trying to become children again. In our maturing enchantment, we will be able to discriminate emotion from perception, from belief, from identity, and that our foundation is built, firm foundation in mindfulness of the body, the firm and flexible container of samadhi, so that we are not compelled to shrink around particular perceptions and collapse into it as being the truth. The immature enchantment is more intoxicated with the ideas, the feelings, the myths, the self-images. In the mature enchantment, there is a clear vertical axis, a midline running right through us, where we're not knocked off our seat. We can see worlds arise, self, other, cosmos, that the trees may be able to speak to us again and have personhood once again. And I may know the divinity of the wild boars in the forest, the forest outside of me, and in the landscapes of my soul. On our way to mature enchantment, we'll often have to deal with territory um, that we could call the territory of splitting, where we have split perceptions of good and bad, of light and dark, of pleasure and pain, of beauty and ugliness, of, of love and hate, of good and bad. Um, the, younger, the younger enchantment will often associate enchantment with uh, the lovely, just the things that appear or feel lovely. Um, and our mature enchantment goes beyond that. So I'm going to read a piece from someone's practice um, and you'll see how she handles through her practice this territory of the splitting and the self-images that get attached to uh, these ideas. You know, I'm good and I mustn't be bad or you're bad and I'm good or I'm bad and you're good or, or particular groups or people right down to the very personal kinds of perceptions as if uh, sometimes we're in a state where it feels like I'm wrong and bad or not worthy and everything, the worthiness is outside of me or someone else. Or I'm good and the badness is outside of me and, and intruding upon me. So if you listen, you'll see how she works with it. As I listened to my mind and feel the pain, I sought through the surface smoke screen of the thoughts that say, he shouldn't and they ought not, and it's not fair. And I come to a fear in my mind that cries, I'm afraid of being hurt. I'm afraid of being attacked by something outside of me. As I hear this, the smoke screen settles and a compassion arises for the pain of this fearful, seemingly young shape in my soul. I value this way of looking. I know the history here. This place needs care and attunement. And I also wonder if I can listen in further too, without dismissing the personal or autobiographical level. 
I wonder what happens if I listen deeper as cosmos listening to cosmos. Listening deeply through the silence that is also here. And as I do this, an image of an archangel arises. He is tall, his wings are strong. The attention becomes finely tuned between listening to the pain as my history and a sense that the pain is more than only my history. As I listen from here, I feel the archangel gazing upon me. Something about the way he stands reassures me that he is not going anywhere. His character, his presence conveys a mixture of being uninvolved and yet also being completely there for me. He is utterly from the beyond and yet he is totally attuned to me in this particular pain of my heart with all its as yet unseen levels. I, pl- I practice and play with tuning my attention more to hearing the distress as personal, and then to hearing it as not only personal. Listening close up and then widening the listening right out without losing intimacy with this particular pain. I feel this skill becomes more nuanced and can include both. The angel supports this process. He brings soothing and healing. But this is not his primary face. The soothing is part, but not all, of why he stands there. Now, with a wide and yet precise and intimate listening, I hear once again and feel the shakiness of the one who is afraid of being hurt. The centre of my chest is shaky and feels unhealth. And from here, I imagine that the threat is outside of me. And I see here the classic split. I recognize, ah, the splitting of good and bad. I am good and what is bad is outside of me and is coming to threaten me. In this world, I, although I am feeling small and powerless, I am writ large and I have an identity of being the good. However, I also see that I'm clearly wedded to an identity of bad as well. I am quaking because I have no ground, and I have no ground because I have lost contact with the wholeness, the totality of the cosmos, where identities of good and bad have no meaning. Now the fear and the tremble in my heart is not about the horrible one being outside of me, from my history or even an idea of the present, or, uh, sorry, instead I feel the fear And I feel the fear as I quake before the archangel. I feel my fear as a fear before God. I am afraid. I am afraid of my wrongness. But my wrongness here is not that I am bad. Something feels wrong. But what feels wrong is that I have conceived myself as separate. I have uh, appropriated the idea of being the good one. This feels bad to be, it feels bad to be separate from the whole. This is my sin. This is the conceit. I stand now before God's angel confessing my pride that I have believed I am separate, that I have appropriated the good. I am sorry. And in the tears that melt my pride, the fear that kept me tight and trembling turns into a kind of vulnerability, an opening 
that lets me be available to the help that I need. The Archangel. He called me out from my self-enclosed prison. He resonated with me. He supported me to learn a kind of listening that listens to many levels at the same time. He didn't reassure me that I am good, nor admonish me for being bad. Good and bad are not part of his world. His interest is not in that. I am being seen and I am being met. And simultaneously I am called further into life. Called to greater knowing, called to greater service, called to heal the splitting of good and bad. And simultaneously I am met in the place in my heart that is still longing to be met, that has never yet been fully healed. And as I truly allow myself to be met and resonated with, it is not only for the soothing and healing. In the healing, I am also called out. And in hearing the calling, there is also a healing. So for this person, the re-enchanting isn't that she is made good in a limited sense of goodness, that the enchantment here is the healing, in the healing of the perceptions of good and bad, the tendency to split that's there for us as humans, these, what is called sometimes the primal disease of the mind, the splitting between good and evil, where we see otherness as otherness rather than as divine otherness. That this, that the reenchantment is the restoring to the wholeness, <clears throat> the beyond the good and bad. And not just beyond good and bad through spiritual perceptions of onenesses or universal love, but via her particularities, her particular kinds of confusion, her particular kinds of pain, and pockets in her heart that still looked out upon the world as her being small and good and innocent and powerless, and out there was the bad, the powerful, and the other. This is what was restored, made whole and restored to the sacred. But in this person, again, there has to be the desire. Yes, for the understanding of cessation, dissolving, unfabricating, the desire and the eros to know this utter goneness, this utter, utter goneness at the center of our soul and the eros and the desire to know the particularity, that through the particularity there is enrichment and soul-making and healing of perception and enriching of the range of perception. I want to bring in Thomas Merton here as um, I would say from my reading, a man who knew a lot about silence, lived many, many years in silence, 
and eros and passion and the flame, the spark to know divinity in many, many dimensions. And as you listen to this, perhaps you can hear some of the things that I've been speaking about, this axis that goes right through the centre of us that I described earlier and into the world of the horizontal, right through the centre. That this heart as this altar of simultaneous desire and desirelessness and the courage to stand there. And in this piece that I'll read, it's his vulnerability and courage and a cosmopoesis, as we've been speaking about. He hints at that that... um, Perception can spill out. Our perception of divinity can spill out into the whole. So this is from Thomas Merton. Yeah, sorry, and you'll you'll also hear um, the eros in in him, this desire. He says, "One might say I had decide I have decided to marry." the silence of the forest. The sweet, dark warmth of the whole world will have to be my wife. Out of the heart of that dark warmth comes the secret that is heard only in silence. But it is the root of all secrets whispered by all lovers in their beds all over the world. So perhaps I have an obligation to preserve the stillness, the silence, the poverty, the virginal point of pure nothingness that is at the centre of all loves. I attempt to cultivate this plant without comment in the middle of the night and water it with psalms and prophecies in silence. It becomes the most rare of all trees in the garden, at once the primordial paradise tree, the axis mundi, the cosmic axle and the cross. One might say, I have decided to marry the silence of the forest. The sweet dark warmth of the whole world will have to be my wife. The sweet dark warmth of the whole world will have to be my wife. It's similar, isn't it, to that piece from Mother Teresa of of being a bride of Christ and then seeing Christ in all of the faces of the suffering of her her patients, her, um, the dying people that she cared for in their suffering, in their particular sufferings. Here, the sweet dark warmth of the whole world will have to be my wife. That beloved otherness, that one we want to draw closer to, that eros of this otherness that has spilled out and become the whole world. Imagine falling in love with the whole world in that way, where we don't reify one particular as more important, more worthy, more divine. But falling in love, and our capacity to fall in love is recovered in the service of awakening, in the service of re-enchanting the cosmos. A falling in love that is not naive, that is not... Um, without wisdom that does not just spin us into vortexes of of pleasure and pain. Yes, we can do that work, but that it is in the service of 
something more than gratifying our needs or gratifying our more uh, obvious needs. To recover the capacity to fall in love means deepening in our capacity to feel. And sometimes it's said that one of the pains of the modern world is, is a kind of anesthetizing, a kind of numbing out of our capacity to feel. Or a limiting of our capacity to feel that is um, shrunken around to be interpreted just about our personal biographical and emotional What would it be to be willing to recover our capacity to fall in love, our capacity to really feel and be in love with the world, while doing the work of healing and recovery of the personal autobiographical, the emotional personal sensitivity, to do the work of healing the numbing out that we do through um, all the ways that we try and numb the way that we are vulnerable and impactable by everything and to bring our aesthetic sensibility, our capacity to feel and sense in the service of the cosmos. And I'll finish with a Poem by Thomas Merton. Be still. Listen to the stones of the wall. Be silent. They try to speak your name. Listen to the living walls. Who are you? Who are you? Whose silence are you? Who are you? Who, be quiet, are you, as these stones are quiet? Do not think of what you are, still less of what you may one day be. Rather be what you are. Be the unthinkable one you do not know. Oh, be still while you are still alive, and all things live around you, speaking, I do not hear, to your own being, speaking by the unknown that is in you and in themselves. I will try, like them, to be my own silence. And this is difficult. The world is secretly on fire. The stones burn, even the stones, they burn me. How can a man be still or listen to all things burning? How can he dare to sit with them when all their silence is on fire? not literalizing or reifying the silence, not literalizing or reifying the fire, kneeling at the altar where these worlds meet, standing at the fulcrum where all the worlds meet, daring to be impactable and vulnerable to the particularnesses that strike us. and to let ourselves love right there.